Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, this is our second Horror Corner episode for October. As Halloween approaches, there's a lot of horror movies that are already out there and more to come. And I'm just using this space to give you my recommendations and hopefully start a conversation amongst yourselves. And In today's episode, I'll be talking about the recent Candyman remake, which is now available at home after having a successful theatrical run made around $60 million in the U.S. and still rolling out around the world. And later, I'll be talking about Lovecraft Country as well. Both projects were actually produced by Jordan Peele, and I just recently caught up with Lovecraft Country, primarily due to Michael K. Williams' unfortunate death. He had gotten an Emmy nomination for that show, and the show itself got many Emmy nominations recently, and it finally was the motivation I needed to finish watching the season. Both projects are very interesting, but also, in the end, didn't fully work for me. But I do believe there's a lot to talk about there. Before we get to that, just a reminder that if you'd like to support the show, first of all, please recommend this to your friends and family, especially if they're fans of horror and they want to get some recommendations or are watching some of these shows on their own. And in our main episode this week, we actually covered Only Murders in the Building, the most, the two most recent episodes. And it's a great time to get caught up on that show on Hulu. It's been very successful and already got renewed for another season. There's only two episodes to go, and the last two or three episodes have been really excellent, not only consistently hilarious, but they have a pretty good mystery going right now as well. And if you feel like binging it now, it's about three hours to get caught up, so it's a great time to get get caught up on that show, and I do recommend it. It's very entertaining, and that is in our current feed. And also, we just wrapped up covering the rather terrible finale of Nine Perfect Strangers, Sona, my co-host, liked that show more than I did, but if you want to hear me really take it apart, especially if you didn't enjoy it, you can listen to the two most recent episodes where I really knock it down. There's a lot of these projects that look good on paper, and I don't know how well they're developed. And I think Nine Perfect Strangers is one of those examples of one of those prestige projects that really had its issues. But if you want to hear more about that, check out that in our feed. Another way to support us, of course, is to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is just tap the button. So if you haven't done so, we'd really appreciate it. It helps bring more listeners to the podcast. And of course, subscribe. Not only will you get notifications, but the more subscriptions we have, the higher we rank on some of these recommendation engines. So before we get into those topics, it's pretty clear that I paired Candyman and Lovecraft Country together because they speak to this kind of shocking underrepresentation of black actors and black characters in general, and definitely black creators within the horror genre for decades now. So I do have some recommendations here that continue an exploration of those themes. My first recommendation is a documentary called Horror Noir. That's Horror Noir, N-O-I-R-E, A History of Black Horror, which is a rather, I mean, from a technical standpoint, it's a rather straight ahead, doesn't really break the mold as a documentary, but it is still very informative documentary that covers the history of black actors and black creators within the horror cinema cinema history. And uh, it's a very short documentary. Uh, it covers a lot of the most important, but also maybe the most obvious moments of black culture within the horror genre. 
And it's kind of shocking if you watch this to see how they can almost focus on maybe three movies per decade. Uh, that really encapsulates all the options that were out there because it was really incredible how there really hasn't been or that black horror has not been a genre in and of itself until extremely recently. Uh, as horror actually shifted from the kind of gothic horrors of the 1930s and 40s to the science fiction horrors of the 1950s and 60s up until Night of the Walking Dead, which is a watershed moment historically for having a horror movie that has a black lead protagonist. But in between, it's amazing that black people disappeared from these from the genre completely. And, and it's a very popular genre among black audiences. So like I mentioned, it's a relatively cursory documentary, but still very useful as a just as a, a historical primer to the topic. And of course, they speak to Jordan Peele, which um, has really le led to almost a, a renaissance now of black horror, uh, of course, with Get Out, massively successful film, and then Us, uh, equally successful from a box office perspective, although maybe not from among his fandom, and now producing projects as well. For example, the two, product, two projects we'll be talking about today, Lovecraft Country, as well as Candyman. My second recommendation, one of my criticisms that I'm going to make on these projects we're going to review today is that the social commentary is a little pedantic. It's a little too on the nose, in my opinion. And I think horror actually works best when there is more ambiguity, just as a horror film. Uh, not that there isn't a good reason to inject social commentary into horror. It's a great opportunity for it. But I think horror works better as a metaphor if you can let the audience come to their own conclusion I think that's better than force-feeding it to them. It's that idea of inception itself. And I think these projects don't do a great job of merging their social commentary with the horror elements of the film. So my second recommendation is a film that I think does a much better job of it in a much more subtle way. And it's a movie available on Netflix called His House. And in this movie, we basically have two characters. One played by Wunmi Musaku. She has had a breakout year not only giving a great performance in Lovecraft Country. We'll talk more about her when we get to that. But also uh, in Loki. So she has a secondary role in the Loki TV show, the Marvel show, but I'm sure they will expand her role in the next season. And the other lead is played by Sope Dirisu. I really apologize about these names, by the way, who I haven't really seen in, any, in anything. He's actually in Gangs of London, which is a show I definitely plan to catch up on, but I have not seen him in anything before. And he's actually very good here as well. And the, they play a refugee couple from South Sudan who are relocating to uh, England. So they basically are these refugees and they have been relocated to the UK. It's a small English town. And a recognizable British actor, Matt Smith, is actually kind of their social worker who places them in this home. And basically what happens is that this house is haunted and they are trapped inside the house because A, it's haunted. <laughs> and on top of that, you have the reality that, you know, the Matt Smith characters, uh, people in the neighborhood, whether they're the white characters or most of the uh, government bureaucrats, basically say to them, don't, you know, if you, if you play nice, if you're the right kind of refugee, and you try to blend in, and you keep yourself employed and do all the right things, you know, be one of the good ones, basically. They literally is like a piece of dialogue and things will go well for you. So this traps them in being able to even call out that this is happening to them inside their own homes. But beyond that, the imagery, the, the horror that emerges from their experience, not only are they trapped by this circumstance they're in, but they're haunted by their pasts in what led them to this moment. And those revelations are really shocking when you finally find out their backstory and really emotionally um, powerful. 
So, and this is something that I kind of complained about just recently with Nine Perfect Strangers is when you kind of throw in a mystery, you kind of throw in the secondary plot points that are just plate spinning. It's just a distraction. It's just keeping the plot going. Whereas here, as we unravel their backstories, their mysteries, and the mystery of this haunting in the house, all of this just reinforces itself. So it's not only that there is this thing that is haunting them, but it is haunting them with their the very things that they're trying to hide from their past, and then sim- simultaneously trying to pretend nothing is wrong so that they can stay in this country because they don't want to return to this horrible situation they were in before. Congratulations. You're being released as asylum seekers, not as citizens, not yet. You will be sent to a home of our choosing. You must not move from this address. We are good people. Whether or not you're good people, it's not me that needs convincing. It's a palace. It's gonna be nice, you're gonna be happy. As long as you can get along, fit in, be one of the good ones. This is our home. I saw something in the dark. You have felt it too. This is what they want. They like to see us crazy. Ah! (laughs) Let them send us back. How quickly you forget everything we went through to get here. So the whole thing is very tense and very psychological and really powerful. And the imagery is scary in ways I haven't seen before. There's a moment where the male protagonist, Bol, is the character's name, envisions the refugees that didn't make it. And he's surrounded by these bodies in the water that he can see through the surface of the water. It's really disturbing and scary, but also potent imagery. And this is directed and written by a director called Remy Weeks a black filmmaker as well. And this is his debut feature. I think I mentioned this in an earlier podcast that there is a really excellent, maybe the best horror film I've seen all year, and maybe just one of the best films I've seen all year, horror movie called Saint Maud, also by a first-time director, Rose Glass. Very surprising to see so much maturity in a very first film there, that movie Saint Maud, and here as well. The fact that this is a first-time director is uh, kind of shocking to me. There's a lot of confidence and a lot of, uh, like I mentioned, the, the scares are there, the subtext is there, there's a lot of subtlety there, and it's really, really impressive. And it's easily available on Netflix. So if you're looking for something that is not your usual run-of-the-mill, jump out of your seat, scares, you know, throwing cats at you, <laughs> cats jumping out of corners, that kind of jump scare thing, which doesn't work for me anyway. If you're looking for something that's a little headier, but definitely scary and definitely will make you think, the movie is His House and it's available on Netflix. My third recommendation is a podcast called Nightlight. One word, Nightlight. This is, uh, if you like listening to horror stories, like there's some very popular podcasts like the No Sleep Podcast, etc. This podcast is a podcast that focuses on black creators. So stories written by black authors, and most of the performers are also black as well. So stories that have a black perspective. And just like most anthologies, they actually have hundreds and hundreds of episodes. So they're not all winners, as you would expect. But it's just interesting to know that there is this robust culture of black creators writing stories. And um, that's an interesting one to hear. I do like to listen to stories sometimes especially when I'm going, when I'm falling asleep, (laughs) maybe not horror stories, not the best, (laughs) maybe not the best, best decision to be making right before you go to sleep. But if you are looking for listening to short fiction, these episodes are all usually 15, 20 minutes long, maybe a little longer. And once again, the podcast is called Nightlight. Okay. So with that out of the way, Candyman.
So some interesting things about Candyman. Candyman is based on a movie, which is really has its audience, but really more of a cult classic from, I believe, 1992. And uh, despite the fact that it's kind of a niche hit, it wasn't a huge hit at the time. It was, oh, I should mention, it was based on a short story by Clive Barker. The story's pretty much intact, but uh, Clive Barker being British, the story was set in Britain. And this artist, this uh, cursed artist from the original story, wasn't actually a black character, but rather it was a uh, it was more a story about class, about you know an upper class woman and a lower class artist and their love affair and the Trump, you know the tragedy that came of it. That's the backstory for the original Clive Barker story that was transposed by the director Bernard Rose, with a very memorable soundtrack by Philip Glass of all people. I don't believe he ever before or after made a horror movie score. And what's interesting about that original film, despite the fact that it was never really that popular, is that everybody knows the urban legend of Candyman. You don't stand in front of a mirror and say Candyman five times. That, that's the urban legend. That is the foundation of that movie and this one to some extent. And this new film is a direct sequel to the first film, but it's actually constructed in a very interesting way. You really do not need to see the first film. You really do not need to know that much about the first film to enjoy this one because the film itself does recap in a way the mythology of the previous film. Now, what's interesting is that the original film itself was about a character called Helen, played by Virginia, Virginia Madsen, who went into the inner city, went into the projects of Chicago to explore the mythology of this urban legend. So she's a graduate student who's studying urban legends, and Candyman is one from Chicago where she lives near. Goes to Cabrini Green, which is basically a famous project at the time in Chicago, to find out more about this mythology. Now, what's interesting about what's been done in this film is that it takes the assumption that you're not that familiar with the film itself, or maybe you either haven't watched it or haven't watched it in a very long time, and all you know is the urban legend. Because in a way, that's what the whole point of the original film is, and this one as well. It's the idea of this story being passed on from generation to generation. Now, the metaphor in the first Candyman, because all the victims live in the projects. And by the way, going back to my recommendation of horror noir and how underrepresented black audiences or black characters were in movies, the idea that you have a film, which does star a white woman, right, in the original Candyman, and is directed by a white man, Bernard Rose, but still the idea that the victims are all black and uh, basically all the characters in the film are black. And living in the inner city of Chicago, you honestly didn't see much of this back then. I mean, you saw a lot of these gangster movies in the early 90s, but you didn't really kind of see any uh, genre films with black protagonists. And once again, the, the metaphor there, I think, of the first Candyman is that Candyman is slaughtering all these people within Cabrini Green. And he, that urban legend, is a stand-in for all of the murders that are occurred or occurring at this time. This murder rate was much higher at that time and in the United States in general. All these unsolved murders. So it's as if some supernatural force is killing all these people because no one's really paying attention to it. So Candyman was the boogeyman, meaning that be careful for Candyman because you could disappear tomorrow. And no one's going to find out who killed you. And it's as if it was a ghost, right? Or, or an evil spirit. Of course, Candyman's story, uh, backstory, and I won't go into it in too much detail. If you want to see the original, it's definitely worth watching. And this film, the new one, is definitely worth watching as well. And even if you only watch the second film, by the way, the most recent one, you'll get the whole backstory. So I'm not going to go into all of it now, but there is also some commentary within the tragedy of uh, the backstory as well. Although Candyman's definitely not a good guy, <laughs> even if you have some sympathy for him. So that brings us to the current film. Now, this film is produced by Jordan Peele, and I just bring him to the fore for the fact that he's been instrumental in the success 
of Get Out, obviously, and him as uh, trying to find new talent and develop a new genre of black horror has been instrumental here. But he's uh, just one of the producers. Nia DaCosta, rather amazing, by the way, Nia DaCosta, directing this film. Just another strange tidbit is that she's the first, uh, when the movie debuted at number one, it was the first time a black woman had ever directed a movie that debuted at one. So it's pretty amazing that that's where we're at right now, that we just finally had that, hit that milestone after all this time. Hopefully the first of many. And she's also uh, not only the director, but also one of the producers and one of the screenwriters of the film as well. The first thing, and honestly, it's the highlight of the movie for me. I got to tell you that, and, and not that there aren't other good things in this film, but the opening credits of this film are spectacular and so simply rendered. I really have to call it out. And, and I'm not the only one who's done this, by the way. I'm sure if you've heard other reviews, people have actually called this out as well. But I got to explain to you that they start by running all of the, you know, the universal logo and, uh, logo and all the credits are run backwards, like uh, as if you're watching them in a mirror, right? So like the universal logo, the characters are backwards and they enter from the left side of the frame rather than the right, etc. So it's a mirror image. So that's clever enough. But then we get this truly stunning, with a really great score as well, visuals of the Chicago uh, skyline. So now we see these giant skyscrapers everywhere, very different skyline than we saw in the original Candyman movie, just you know, around 30 years ago now, but quite a different skyline. And what's so amazing about it is that it's mirrored again, but it's inverted. So the skyscrapers, rather than rising into the clouds, they're like descending into hell or something. And it is such a simple thing. You just flip them upside down. I still, you know, flip the, the, the frame upside down. But it is stunning to look at these roaming shots of these skyscrapers. And if anything, speaking of Clive Barker, it makes me think of some of the hellscapes in Hellraiser 2, which also based on a Clive Barker property, by the way, it, all very interesting to me. And uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's like I said, very simple technique, but really gorgeous credits. Uh, and then we open on, we finally get into the, the plot of the film, and we meet our protagonist, Anthony, played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who's been in a lot of things. He was an Aquaman, and uh, maybe most impressively recently was also in the Watchmen series. And he has a girlfriend, uh, Tiana Parrish. And he is an artist, and she is an art curator. And they are well off. They live in a beautiful apartment in a gentrified area of near the projects, which are now abandoned. And the film, the, the film itself is actually, uh, parts of it are still shot within the abandoned Cabrini Green grounds, which is still a fascinating location to shoot. Anthony needs new material for his next show, and he's looking for some inspiration. And the Candyman mythology gets introduced to him. And he starts to create Candyman-inspired art. And this leads to, once again, this revitalization of the myth of Candyman. And then people start to die. And I won't go into much more details about that. There's a lot more complexity to the story. Not only Anthony's connection to revitalizing the Candyman mythology, but an interesting concept here of the idea that an artist can take a story, take a mythology, and then rewrite it. And, there's, and how that is an empowering thing that we have oftentimes been told stories, historical details that we are told are facts only to find out that over time that these stories have been that we're only seeing one side of the argument one side of the story one side of the facts and the film posits that it's possible to take control of these myths and in a way weaponize them against those who have used the same story as an oppressor so where am i on this film it's a real mixed bag the first thing i want to say the positive stuff the performances across the board are really really strong everyone does a great job and the second thing that i can praise without any caveat is the direction by Nia DaCosta. The film looks great. The locations, the music, the tone. I mean, there's, you see the honeycomb building made famous by like the Wilco album cover uh, and bees are a theme within here. So yeah, the honeycomb 
building itself has some metaphorical resonance, but shot from the outside, these circular hallways within the building itself, shot within these kind of roving camera. Anyway, beautifully directed. I, I have not seen Little Woods, which is her first film. I'll probably have to track it down now just because this film looked so great. Really love to see how she did that first film and only her second film. So speaking about young filmmakers, uh, you know, just the, uh, just the ability of, of having such a, a great tone control so early in her career. So that's the positive stuff. Oh, and there's one more thing I want to bring up is also that as the story, especially the original mythology is being described, we see these like shadow puppet characters uh, performing the stories. Uh, so whenever we, we hear these like backstories, we see this kind of child's, but very detailed um, shadow puppet projection of, of the story that's being told. And this also is really beautiful. So the design work is beautiful. The special effects, the horrific body horror that we see later on is impressively rendered. The performances are really solid. I think my caveat in recommending the film, which is definitely worth watching, by the way, but the negative part is that I feel that it's just some messiness in the thematics of the film. Things that are get introduced and really not explored that much, and in a way, they should have just been stripped away. Once again, I think less would be more in this regard. And it's going to be a very similar criticism, by the way, that I'm going to have for Lovecraft Country, which will be my next uh, commentary here. It feels like there's too much going on. And the last argument I'd make is that it's a little too pedantic. It's a little too on the nose. And ironically enough, maybe this is like a get out of jail free card for <laughs> filmmakers sometimes, especially like M. Night Shyamalan has done this in his films. But because we're in the art world, we have critics who are criticizing Anthony's work. And literally, the female critic, one of the critics, basically criticizes him for his work being too on the nose, too obvious. And it's ironic because I think the film in and of itself is guilty of the same thing. So that is where one of my criticisms is. The film is barely 90 some odd minutes long. And honestly, there could have been more stripped out streamlining of the thematics of the film, maybe strip out 10 minutes or so to just remove some of the scenes that are too direct. And the film would have probably been stronger. But then the finale feels kind of rushed. So maybe that's where you could pad it out again by adding a little more uh, logistics. I actually don't mind that the story starts to jump around. It's almost like you're jumping through time and, and, and some of the characters' minds, I don't want to spoil anything, but some of the characters' perspectives are so unreliable that they are probably seeing gaps in their timeline too. So all of this kind of elliptical storytelling doesn't bother me at all. But it would easily be, it could easily be fleshed out to pad out the length even more so. But like I said, it's only about 90 minutes long. It moves very quickly. The performances are great. Uh, the film looks great. And then, but then there's also like a scene where a bunch of teenager girls get um, killed by Candyman. That seems completely out of place. And this film also kind of doesn't really fit the mood of some of the other scenes. So it's a little overstuffed. It really seems to be high-minded at some times and then seems to kind of want to get like some kind of cheap thrills in there and some of these things just don't fit together and i know there was like three or four screenwriters and maybe there's just too many ideas in there and it just needed to be a little more polished a little more stripped back so uh, all of this is a little messy is basically what it comes down to but it is it's close to being a uh, a really solid film. I, I mean, I think there's an edit of this film that could have been really excellent. Um, and the last criticism I'd make is that this is kind of commonplace nowadays, but the cops towards the end of the film are not only made out to be villains, they're made out to be really, really one-dimensional villains. And, I, and this is kind of a pet peeve of mine recently, that this has kind of become a trope in and of itself. Not to say, by the way, that there aren't terrible abuses of abuses of privilege that uh, the police impose on the people that they police and usually oftentimes unfortunately over police it's not to say it's not a legitimate issue but by making them these kind of cartoonish one-dimensional monsters 
it doesn't actually make the argument stronger. It makes it weaker because the reality is that those villains aren't one-dimensional villains. And, and if that's what you're looking for, you're never going to find because the reality is that these problems are more ingrained. They're subtler than all this. And I think it just cheapens the whole argument by making the villain so thinly and obviously villainous. So that's my last uh, criticism there. It's all a little overstuffed. And just one example of this is very early on, a character basically just criticizes these wealthy artists and his girlfriend for moving into a gentrified area. And it's the dialogue is so on the nose, it, it, it doesn't make any kind of real, doesn't score any kind of real points about gentrification at all. But then later, uh, Anthony has a conversation with the uh, art critic and throws back in her face an argument that she had made about how artists are like the, the tip of the spear for gentrification of neighborhoods. And he throws it back in her face to say that, well, they're used in a way, right? They're used to, to fix up an area to make it more appealing to these richer, whiter people to move back in. And that's actually a pretty succinct and smart retort. And this is the film in a nutshell. It's like, it's something too on the nose, not subtle enough, not deep enough. And then five or 10 minutes later, a similar scene that is much more mature, much more intelligent, much more clever in its bite. Uh, and then it, it kind of goes back and forth. So it's a mixed bag. Doesn't fully work for me, but definitely worth watching, uh, especially if you were a fan of the first film. And like I said, um, Nia DaCosta does a great job directing, and I definitely can't wait to see what she does next. And uh, the cast across the board does a great job. Even some characters have very little to do. They just pop up for like one or two scenes, and they're great in, in their very limited screen time. All right, the last thing I want to bring up is a Lovecraft Country. We gotta face this new world. Instinct, I'll claim in it. This is our family story. So I finally saw Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country recently, and this really should have been something that I was going to love. And I can't help after watching it to not parallel it to the massive success that I thought that the Watchmen series was. There's so many parallels. You have a loose adaptation, a reinvention to some extent of its source material. The Watchmen in one case, the series has is an extrapolation of events that happen in the comic book without ever really referencing or, or containing any of the individual moments from the comic book. Maybe a few in flashback, I shouldn't say, but relatively relatively indirect but a true sequel to the comic book with lovecraft country you have a novel by matt ruff from probably like eight or nine years ago maybe more so this is a loose adaptation of that it's actually a closer adaptation to that than the watchman series is to the watchman comic but in both cases an adaptation also you have a source material whether it's the watchman comic book originally and in the case of this lovecraft country show you have an adaptation of Lovecraft's mythologies, H.P. Lovecraft, that is, from 100 years ago or more at this point. And in both cases, they're introducing the African-American experience into these storylines, where they weren't present before. Not directly, anyway. And the reason I mention that is because H.P. Lovecraft, just to call that out directly, was a horrible, horrible racist. And I can't excerpt it here because it's such an ugly poem, but there is there's a poem that gets called out directly in the Lovecraft Country show, which is a horribly ugly racist poem. And the reality is that Lovecraft's mythology itself, these monsters, these interdimensional creatures that he sees that, you know, basically are, you know, make his protagonists lose their minds, just the concept of them, is a representation of minority groups, of immigrants and black and brown people. So it's utterly repulsive. 
At the same time, he has been incredibly influential to horror, uh, the, Cthulhu, the Cthulhu mythology, and most directly, if you are a fan of Guillermo del Toro's films, all his design work is very, very much indebted to H.P. Lovecraft. All this interdimensional horror is directly related to H.P. Lovecraft, and he's kind of the grandfather of all interdimensional cosmic type horror. So Matt Ruff writes this book, which kind of remixes Lovecraft's mythologies and puts them and surrounds them or, or puts them in the context of black characters dealing with the racism of the pre-civil rights, post-Jim uh, Crow era in the South. Uh, going back to those parallels with the Watchmen, uh, with Watchmen um, as well, in both cases, we have flashbacks to the Tulsa massacre of, of uh, 1921. And we even have, in both cases, a bottle episode that takes place in an Asian country around a war. In, in uh, Watchmen's case, we're talking about the Vietnam War. In Lovecraft Country's case, we're talking about the Korean War. So there's so many parallels. And the question I, I'm thinking as I'm watching the show recently, why did Watchmen work so well? And why did this not work? This is why it's an interesting parallel or, or companion piece to my commentary here on Candyman is because I think once again, we have something that is, it's the messiness of it. There's too much going on in the story. So to be explicit, if you watch the series, the first episode is terrific. It's a great pilot episode. It does have hints of the messiness that is yet to come, but it feels like that's all part of the plan early on. Jonathan Majors is the star. Gives a great performance and now is in the Marvel fold as well, also from Loki and will be in many, many other, you know, I'm not going to spoil that for you, but if you want to listen to my our Loki recaps, by the way, they're in the feed as well. So track those down if you haven't caught up with Loki. Really, really great show. Jonathan Majors is on there as well. And uh, he is now in the Marvel fold in a big way. And this is a pretty stellar cast across the board. You have uh, Journey Smollett, Michael K. Williams, of course, who unfortunately, like I mentioned earlier, had passed away unexpectedly just a few weeks ago. Wumi Musaku, which is so excellent in his house, but also really excellent here. Maybe one of the standouts in a, in a really strong cast. Abby Lee Kershaw, Courtney B. Vance, Anjanou Ellis, I mean, Jamie Chung. I mean, really everybody in the cast is really, really solid. And Jada Harris, I want to call her out to a younger actress who also gives a strong performance. So the performers are almost universally rock solid. So what went wrong? Honestly, I go back to the idea of just how overstuffed it is. And it's the show itself is so episodic after that really strong pilot episode. The show is trying to be almost like an anthology in and of itself. We have a haunted house episode. We have a science fiction episode. Uh, we have a body horror episode. We kind of like run the gamut. But so Matt Ruff's uh, novel is also similarly episodic like that. It really has these almost like individual stories. And most of the stories in the novel are in the show. So it's a pretty faithful adaptation, but it not only adapts what's on the page, it then goes and adds so many more things. It adds more character and it adds just thematics. It, um, we have a whole additional subplot about sexual identity. And when I say that, I don't just mean like sexuality. I mean sexual identity as in like identities because there is some literal transformations in the show, which are visually stunning by the way. But even that, there is a, a, a molting effect where someone changes bodies and it's it's astounding and, and so well realized, by the way, like from a special effects perspective, really grisly to watch, but really fascinating in how it's visualized. But even that doesn't make sense. Like, you know, there's a character, well, I, I'm trying not to spoil anything here, but there's a character who can transform their bodies and they get kind of caught out in the open as this transformation happens. And we've seen how painful and ugly it, it is. And then we see her and she's uh, back at home. And like, how did she get back home? How is that even possible? And then later on, 
on, similarly, we see her with this like molted body around her, kind of like what's been left behind. And that's the first time we've ever seen that. Like, no, she doesn't normally, you know, carry that around with her as she's, you know, transforming from one body to the next. And I'm just kind of harping on that one point because it's indicative of kind of a messiness that happens over and over again in the show. And so it's so it's hard to ignore the show. It was nominated for Best Series, by the way. It actually got an Emmy nomination for Best Series. And I can't speak to whether it deserved it or not considering what its competition was. And also considering that there is probably three episodes, I would say, that are truly excellent. The, the pilot episode, truly excellent. The um, the flashback episode to the Tulsa Massacres is pretty strong. Well, you know, has a couple of weak spots, but in general, very strong. And uh, an episode that takes place uh, in Korea during the Korean War, which is almost like a bottle episode where we see Jamie Chung's character's backstory, is also excellent. Maybe the best episode of the entire season. But in between, there are episodes. One is almost like an Indiana Jones riff, which once again is kind of included in the novel, but is so overstuffed with additional characters and additional incidents that that it seems like it just all needed to be streamlined, tightened up. And uh, simultaneously, by the way, they bring up these very, uh, they bring up so many different themes, so many really fascinating historical commentary that can be made. And somehow, some of it is so on the nose, it's so direct, it's so obvious that it doesn't really say anything interesting, while other things are utterly fascinating, like some of these concepts of just identity itself, like, you know, being able to wear another skin, right? Some of these things are so fascinating in how they're brought up and they don't pay off. Like they're not, they're, they're unexplored. And so it's so frustrating to watch them kind of get it right 25% of the time and then get it wrong for half the episode and then kind of get back to it again. Uh, and then when you're just kind of, when I was anyway, watching it, just kind of ready to give up on the whole thing, they give you a great episode from beginning to end. So it was quite frustrating. But the reason I overall have got to say that it's probably going to be more frustrating than than a winner for most people is the simple fact that the, the finale, which I will not spoil in case you do watch it, but the finale so utterly misses the mark. Characters that we are so vested in that are maybe the most fascinating characters in the entire show are completely sidelined. They basically disappear from the story and are given no exit uh, after being so important to the proceedings up until that point. It's so crazy. And just messy, basic stuff like how do people get from point A to point B or why do they do the things they needed to do? It's really just to get to the next plot point. And then the whole finale as it plays out, which once again, I won't spoil here, but the whole finale, it, it literally brings all these characters that have been developed throughout the course of the season just to be there to, to bear witness. And they're there just to perform some mechanical action that you know gets the plot over the finish line and then they're just okay i did my part goodbye <laughs> so it's it's so perfunctory in some ways and once again i go back to this a similar criticism i had with Candyman, although i think it's much more egregious here i feel like the creators of this show probably were very excited to kind of had free reign to create a show that really encompasses everything it has you know, racial history in it. It has this adaptation of this rich text that has, you know, that kind of mashes up Lovecraft mythology in an interesting way. They have this uh, opportunity to to make a little body horror movie and another vampire movie and another science fiction movie, well, interdimensional science fiction movie, and make another little cult witchcraft, warlocks and witches, and, war and a ghost story and an Indiana Jones adventure uh, with all these black 
cast members. So it, it, it's they're like kids in a, in a candy store. And I understand the impulse to try to do it all. But it's almost like you, you got to pull back. You got to lean it down. And these, th- these are things that could have been developed further in season two. Now, there is not going to be a season two. Unfortunately, I think originally they greenlit it and then they decided not to go forward with it. Part of it, I think, is because of some of these issues they had with the, the original season. And maybe fans weren't as thrilled. Maybe they were disappointed enough with the finale that another season was kind of not in the cards. But regardless of what the reasoning is, my personal opinion was that to limit the scope of the show in the season one and then develop these themes that go so underdeveloped here in episode, uh, in a second season, would have been far preferable, in my opinion. Nonetheless, strong performances, great special effects, at least three terrific episodes, and at least two more that are pretty interesting, even if they're not fully executed. So it is a, I, I guess I have to go with a marginal thumbs up here. If the if they had really landed the finale, I, I would have been much more enthusiastic about this. I could barely recommend it because of how badly things go in the finale, and especially because we don't get another season. So I almost feel like you can just kind of watch the best episodes and uh, almost get the full effect. But anyway, I do hope that we get more adaptations in the future and that this isn't that we don't see this as like the black horror show on TV. Like hopefully there'll be more of this in the fact that we don't need to put everything try to shove every possible genre into one movie because it'll just be another one. And uh, I know we haven't had that in the past and I do like that we are getting it now, but but as it is a sometimes successful attempt, but I'm sure HBO thought they had another Watchmen on their hands and it really doesn't pan out. And there's so many of the same ingredients, but the stew is just not quite right. The balance is just a little bit off, but still lots of good stuff here. And hey, but if this is how Wunmi Mosaku and Jonathan Majors and some of these other uh, cast members break out, if this is like their breakout moment, well, all to the good. All right, I think that's it for this week. Once again, if you enjoyed this and you have other friends who are horror fans, please recommend this to other people as well. Next week, we will have another episode. I'm not sure what the theme is going to be. Either it will be anthologies. VHS 94, I believe, just came out. And uh, I'm only halfway through it. And I have enjoyed individual elements of the VHS anthology movies. But I'm really not liking this one, gotta tell you. Even though the reviews have been very positive, I'm not really loving this one. What I'm thinking about doing, possibly, if I go in this direction, is anthology horror movies that are not great, but have great individual episodes. So hopefully I can get you like a playlist to put together of not of, of good to great horror shorts within not great horror anthologies. And, uh, you know, I've done the research in watching these things. <laughs> so hopefully you can just skip the bad ones and I'll try to give you the good ones. Uh, the other possibility is that we have a theme around couples horror. So basically couples who find themselves in horrific situations. And in both cases, these will be comedic horror movies. So I will keep you posted as to what that playlist will be. Uh, so tune in next week. Like I said, I'm still on the fence. Depends on whether I can put together enough of these anthology titles. But I do think I'll, even if I don't do it next week, we will definitely have an anthology episode before Halloween. I do like watching short films. And uh, sometimes you see an anthology with five, six, seven episodes. And they're mostly bad. But there's always one or two really good ones. And they kind of find new filmmakers that way. So that'll be the, uh, coming up in the main feed. Uh, continuing to talk about about Only Murders in the Building. That should be out early next week. There's only two episodes left. Highly recommend that. Very entertaining, very entertaining series. And it's coming to a close now. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. And you can listen to us if you want to hear our feedback as well. And of course, in two weeks, we start recapping Succession Season 3. And I'm very excited. Season 2 is 
truly outstanding television and really looking forward to that HBO series return. So what do you think of Lovecraft Country, of Candyman? Do you have other black-themed films, uh, black-themed horror films that I may have forgotten? Reach out to me, need some introduction at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I'll talk to you soon. Life could be a dream, life could be a dream. Do, 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 shaboom. Life could be a dream Shaboom. If I could take you up in paradise up above Shaboom. If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream Sweetheart, hello, hello again Shaboom, and open with me to get boom Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong Oh, 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 bip A bip, a rope, a dip Oh, life could be a dream If only all my precious plans would come true If you would let me spend my whole life loving you Life would be a dream, sweetheart